said, your parents tell you it as a child, right? Anything is possible. He said, you got to totally throw away what you think is possible. Things that took a year, they were doing in under a month. Like that is just wild. He moved beds into the lab, not because he was forcing them to do it, but because the scientists were staying there around the clock and didn't want to have to commute. I think it speaks to the power of focus and resources. And I had a mentor who used to say, where you focus, you win. Where you focus, you win. Where you focus, you win. So here's a question. What can a 133-year-old healthcare company that has 110,000 employees teach us about innovating in healthcare? How do you stay nimble? How do you evolve and adjust your approach to dynamic market forces when the wheels of industry are so, so big? We're going to explore that question today in our conversation with Julia Hammock from Abbott Diabetes Care. In this fireside chat, which was held in front of a live audience of founders from the startup health community, we learn how Julia and her team resuscitated the diabetes sector within Abbott, launched a continuous glucose monitor that took the industry by storm, and learn about the business lessons she learned along the way that can help health startups at every stage. This is Startup Health Now, the podcast that celebrates the entrepreneurs and innovators reimagining the future of health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. Stick around. Julia, thank you for joining us today on this fireside chat. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start with uh, top level. Let's start with Ab Abbott Laboratories. I know diabetes is a group uh, underneath the that bigger umbrella, and it's a sub organization. But help us understand Abbott, the glo the global brand. Uh, give us a sense of size and scope, the ethos of the company, uh, et cetera, and what that means for life on the inside. Sure. Um, well, it was interesting because when Sarah and Logan reached out, I said, well, I sit in one part of Abbott and we are more of a traditional J&J &J model with lots of different businesses, but you're very tied to being part of this company that's been around for 133 years. So Abbott, just to give you a sense of size, it's about 35 billion in revenue, I think market cap around 200 billion um, and over 110,000 employees. It's a big, big, big old school company. Um, you know, been around 133 years, there aren't that many companies that are like that. Um, there's three divisions and you're going to see here the divisions you are going to hear how different they are. And that really plays into how our company works. And the first is medical devices where I sit in diabetes care. And so some of the brands that, you know, are Freestyle Libre. That's the brand that I worked on. That's a continuous glucose monitor, um, for diabetes. Um, then we've got a lot in cardiovascular. So one of the big brands there would be Mitraclip. Um, and then we've got a bunch of businesses in neuromodulation. That's all med device. Then you have diagnostics, which is testing very different type of business uh, and all different types of testing. So big high scale for hospital systems and laboratories, as well as clinics, as well as at home and rapid diagnostics that are everything from big labs in the US and hospitals to, um, you know, to emerging markets and some of the um, diseases, testing for diseases in emerging markets. Um, and then you've got, lastly, nutrition. Nutrition is a totally different business, right? That's a lot of brands that you probably breeze by at the drugstore all the time without thinking about. So on the PED side, there's uh, Similac and Pedialyte. On the adult side, there's Ensure, Glucerna, Zone Perfect. And that's more of like a CPG brand, right? So that's a very different business model. It is healthcare, but it's much more marginally healthcare, or at least the overlap 
of CPG and healthcare. Um, and from a business portfolio perspective, that's not where tons of innovation and growth is. That's more of the kind of like the, you know, stabilizes this broader portfolio. You, you, you said something that um, made me think, Logan, you said global brand. I'm not sure Abbott has a global brand, something we think about a lot. You see a, a lot of Abbott commercials on TV, so we're certainly trying to get there and associate it with health. What happened with our COVID tests this year really gave us an opportunity to advance our brands because now people know Abbott as COVID tests in particular. Uh, but it's something that we think about a lot in terms of what brand do we want to push? Because in diabetes, you're by nature of diabetes, we're already sitting at sort of this intersection of consumerism and healthcare. So therefore, what brand is really important to us. Um, but it's very much a portfolio company. I, when, we, when we were prepping for this call, you told me a bit about that, uh, the ways the company had to innovate in order to create enough COVID tests and really uh, create new tests uh, for, for at-home uh, kits. So could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of the challenges that were involved in that? Sure. And I'm going to take a step back and, and, and talk about, you know, we're a 133-year-old company. So that might make you think, especially this group, that that is really old and stodgy. And on the one hand, that is absolutely right. I mean, there's definitely cultural things. It's an old company. Um, I think they still wear, you know, suits and ties in Chicago and headquarters. Um, but there's also, when I first interviewed here and I interviewed with our president, um, he said, oh, we're so entrepreneurial. And, you know, in my head, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, really? I'm sure every big old school company feels that way. And if you're big and old school in healthcare, you are old school, right? But the flip side of that that's truly true is that you don't stick around for 133 years unless you're able to pivot constantly and like true pivots and actually move when speed when it matters. And that I think is one of the things that is actually really surprising and shocking. And so Abbott both gets into businesses, you know, they buy into new, new areas of growth all the time. Um, in that regard, pivoting to be able to stay alive and successful for this long, but also this kind of speed that you need when opportunity presents itself. So COVID is, that's kind of the context for your question, Logan, on COVID. Uh, we have a rapid diagnostics. We have a diagnostics division. Um, over the course of 2020, we created nine COVID tests. Um, these are tests and they're all different types, molecular, the kind of PCR tests, um, you know, as well as rapid, as well as big lab-based antibodies, nine tests. But even just within the, the rapid diagnostic, these are tests that usually take a year, at least minimum of a year to create, and they were doing it in weeks. And it's also, I work for a product company. Very, very different just, software. Can you just pause pause for a second? You said you're doing something in a week that used to take a year. I know that's not your division, but any thoughts on some of the things that were necessary to, to move so quickly? Things that you had to kind of break out of the way. There's probably some global lessons to be learned there. Sure. And I heard, I just heard um, our... our our number two at uh, where I sit in Abbott Di uh, Diabetes actually was just the president of Rapid Diagnostics. That's the one piece. And he was, I was just talking to him about this and he was telling the story and there were a few lessons learned. One is I think it's going to affect my life going forward is that he's now going to completely rethink what is possible. He said, that's number one. He said, your parents tell you it as a child, right? Anything is possible. He said, you got to totally throw away what you think is possible, especially when it comes to speed. I mean, this was things that took a year they were doing in under a month. Like that is just wild. He moved beds into the lab, not because he was forcing them to do it, but because the scientists were staying there around the clock and didn't want to have to commute. And there's so, you know, 
when and there's also I mean there's a, if there's a need right there also and everybody working together including FDA right we're regulated so all of a sudden all the rules went away and that's something that's a pretty unique to this situation yeah. um, I think it speaks to the power of focus and resources mm. they did daily check-ins with our CEO and this is the benefit of being in a big company they threw a lot of resources at this as we work for a product company so that means you're actually scaling manufacturing I mean you have to, to be able to build millions and millions of tests you have to build factories. That was being done in, again, weeks that used to take years. Mm. So if you throw, if you're focused, you know, I had a mentor who used to say, where are you focused, you win. Where are you focused, you win. Where are you focused, you win. And this is like the ultimate in that. You had the CEO, you had the entire organization. I mean, we sold billions of dollars of COVID tests the year we created them. Think about that from a startup perspective. We did not, these did not exist and we sold many billions of dollars of these in one single year, like totally wild. And then the last thing I'll sort of say about sort of this experience is the reminder of leadership through all times. And it's, you know, we all know it and it's true, but he was telling the story of that he was out for a walk at midnight, which is the only time he ever left work, the only time he ever took walks. And he bothered to go over to Abbott house. He was, he was living in Chicago to the actual original house of Dr. Abbott in the 1800s. And he took a picture of where he was and he sent it out to the team and sort of midnight of him at there in the middle of the night, you know, this, this prose about what it meant and what we were doing for the world and tying to the values of this company. And he said that he got so many emails back about how like that encouraged people through this time that they were not seeing their families, you know, just connecting to impact and sort of those leadership moments which are always there, but are sometimes harder to remember to do when you're working around the clock and you're tired and you're drained too. Um, and so I thought that was pretty awesome. Oh, there's multiple uh, great lessons there. I loved how you said, you know, throw away what you think is possible and where you focus, you win. And just that idea of, of leading by example, lots of fantastic lessons, whether you're a uh, $35 billion in a multinational or whether you're a startup. Um, so you're positioned in diabetes care uh, underneath, you know, Abbott Global, uh, the, not the global brand, not the global brand necessarily, but Abbott Laboratories. And um, so tell us more about diabetes care, the organization, uh, where it sits within Abbott, and just give us the breakdown there. Sure. Um, so as I kind of started off with, I'm in diabetes care, which is really my whole world. So I spend all my time focused on diabetes. Um, Within diabetes care, we had a kind of what we call our legacy business, which was blood glucose monitoring, which was um, meters and sticks, finger pricks, so that, you know, strips. So that every time somebody with diabetes needs to check his or her glucose, they would use a strip. Uh, kind of a commodity business. And we were number three in a commodity business up until uh, we launched Freestyle Libre. Freestyle Libre is a continuous glucose monitor. Um, and so that is our main product. And everything I focus on is related to that. Um, and so it is a continuous glucose monitor that helps people with diabetes um, who need to understand their glucose. Um, if you're an insulin taking patient with diabetes, then you need to know uh, your glucose every time you eat. So we are a medical device. It's a puck. It sits on your arm. Um, it lasts two weeks and it checks your glucose continuously without having to do painful finger sticks. And we launched that in 2014. And that is, you can think of us as one product, even though we still have legacy business. Um, and then another kind of interesting transformation as a, as a business for us is going from pure medical device to now thinking about medical device plus digital health, 
to surround, um, you know, to surround our medical device to be able to manage diabetes. Um, so we are um, a relatively, you know, again, Abbott has a big portfolio, so we're a piece of the portfolio, um, and we are a big driver of growth because we have been growing, um, you know, at 35, 40% per year, year over year for the last six years. Um, so we sort of this incredible growth story. Um, and then we sit within the med device division of Abbott. Okay, so let's go back to the, the process and the journey from what you said was a commodity business, the finger stick glucose monitor to Freestyle, Freestyle Libre, the current product. Um, you had a, I think what you described in our pre-call, kind of a stagnant sector uh, of the business and you had to innovate internally and really kind of redefine it. So uh, talk to us about how you did that. What, what were some of the forces at play that allowed you to innovate within a, an old institution like Abbott? Yeah. Uh, I actually think huge kudos to our leadership team This preceded me um, because I think it's actually extremely hard. Anyone who's read sort of Clayton Christensen and knows how hard it is to disrupt yourself. Um, but I think it was because it was sort of this dire situation. Again, we had been in blood glucose monitoring, um, which had been a good business for a long time. We were number three, DeRoche and LifeScan. Um, which is not a great place to be if that's your whole business, but it was fine. Um, and then what happened in the U.S. was there was a, a Medicare cut prices significantly, and there was a race to the bottom, and we became a commodity kind of overnight. There are other markets like Japan that make it that constantly are lowering prices, but it, it really happened very, very quickly in the U.S. Um, based on what Medicare did, and then the commercial payers followed. So our leadership team at the SI at the time, the way they describe it, is they basically sat around a table and said, we're dead if we don't reinvent ourselves. Like, you know, at best we'll get sold to private equity by Abbott, but you know, if we want it, but we think we have a real opportunity because we had the biochemistry that you needed from the blood glucose monitoring and strips days. We thought we had a better way to get to that. We had the people and the design and the will. And so it was again, a very focused effort. And at the time there were, two primary uh, CGM competitors, Medtronic and Dexcom. And, but it was a very, very small market at the time. And we came in and they designed, it's been you know, three years just focused on building a new product, making all the trade-offs you have to make about minimally viable time to market. And, but the real guiding principles for us were great ease of use and accessible. So you know, be very clear on what our values proposition was gonna be, which is accessible and affordable. Um, which means translates to lower cost. So we would be able to say, we're going to take a great user experience at a much lower cost. And that was the driving principle. Um, we came to market in end of 2014. And again, the first CGM started showing up around 2005, but not really until kind of early 2010, 2011, completely transforming the lives of people with diabetes from having to prick their fingers to just looking at it on a reader or your phone. Um, and, um, we have number one market share in the world. So, um, you know, it's a great place to be. Um, yeah. and again, we're in, um, you know, we're in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries now with number one market share in the world. So really quick turnaround. Um, and I think it, to answer your question, it comes back to, um, I don't think that would have ever happened if we had been doing well. And it was because we are on the edge of demise that we said it's this or, you know, all in. And then yeah. again, that focus. 
you know, I would love to hear from somebody who's on the call who has uh, been in a situation where they felt like their product had stagnated or had been commodified and they needed to rethink, redefine what they were, they were going to do and go back to the drawing board. And um, I'll bet there's someone who's had that experience. So um, if you have and you'd like to enter the conversation, let me know in the chat. Let's talk a bit about, um, well, the lessons learned in that process. I mean, I, I understand kind of the basics of, of what you did, although it was kind of a meteoric rise from sitting around a table to being number one in the world. Uh, I, I'll bet there are some um, rules of the road that you can pass along, how to move that quickly, how to scale globally in that way, um, in a way that might be useful for a startup. Well, it's an interesting, and I'm not sure a startup is as positioned to scale globally as a big company, right? You gotta play to your strengths. So if you think about our, we have a, our competitor Dexcom is a formidable competitor. They went deep in the US and really built around product and have a great product. Hopefully no one hears me say that. I'm at work right now. And they have a tremendous, you know, they're formidable competitors. It's just between they us. Went it's just very between deep, us. They went very, very deep in the US and now they're scaling internationally and that's probably easier. Um, but you got to pick your, you can't do everything for everyone at the same time. So we said, let's take our product, simple, easy to use. Let's not keep adding function after function and let's go win. Let's go win the formularies. Let's go get, let's go win payer contracts. And let's get the global share because it's going to be a lot harder to take away than it is to get in the first place. So we went OUS outside the US where we basically had no competitors and you know have things like single payer governments in Germany, right? Covering us, things like that. Um, so we plugged into a commercial organization that we had. I think if you're a startup, that's going to be a very thing, hard thing to do is to go broad geographically. And so instead, you say, how do you lock up to the equivalent version in a single region, whether you're international or not? How do you lock up the important payers? How do you think about, um, I think we get very, very product focused and being in healthcare, product is the one small piece of the equation. I mean, right now our nemesis is the FDA because the FDA is so focused on COVID, we can't get anything through. Mm. So having great FDA relationships, having great evidence, it all starts and ends with evidence because evidence is what gets you payers and consumers are gonna only pay so much for healthcare and it's small. We know that consumers do not want to pay for anything they think should be paid for by benefits. Mm. So payers are important. FDA is important. Um, and I think that, you know, I see it here because we are a product oriented company and I'm with our strategy and I'm always thinking products, well, we can't be technology out. If you're technology out, you're not really either, you're, you're not thinking of the true need or you're not thinking about how payers are ultimately going to pay for it. And um, so those would be, bunch of different thoughts all kind of jumbled together for you. One thing I love about that answer is that you couldn't just innovate in the technology, in the device. You had to innovate in the business model as well and think about what were the regions you were going to go after? How is that going to have a domino effect as you sought a global footprint? It can't just be one or the other. All strategy versus all device has to all come together. Let's talk about diabetes uh, itself. Uh, in health innovation, we often hear the staggering statistics about diabetes, how it's a, a leading global killer. It's affecting more and more, millions more people each year. And so, um, you know, how do your role and the role of your organization 
uh, how, how do you see it playing its part in this global fight? Kind of give us a, a sense of the fight against diabetes from your vantage point. Sure. Um, being in diabetes, there is no shortage of addressable markets. I mean, that's, you know, you, you look at the statistics and there's 465 million people in the world with uh, diabetes is what the, um, is what's estimated by IDF, um, International Diabetes Federation, and that's going to a billion. Okay, so diabetes is an epidemic and there's several types of diabetes. There's type one, which is people, it used to be called juvenile and people get it uh, typically when they're younger. Um, and then there's type two. And type two um, is something that is, people get and it's very heavily genetic, but it's also based on, it's also based on diet and exercise. Um, it's heavily stigmatized, so people feel shame about it. Um, and, um, and it's just extremely, extremely difficult to die, uh, disease to manage. And um, we do so much research, of course, with, our, with patients and focus groups and, and um, go deep and across all of our segments. And there was this quote that came out of one of our focus groups that I just has really stuck with me. And we asked, if diabetes were an animal, what would it be? And this group came back and they said, it, is a, it would be a flesh eating monster that gnaws at your body and your soul. So diabetes is a flesh eating monster, right? You have to, there's the shame about it. There's judgment. You feel people are constantly saying, oh, don't eat that. Or, you know, or conversely, somebody says, oh, I baked you a cake for your birthday. And you're thinking I shouldn't eat that. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not all about sugar. And there's a lot more complexity to it, but it's a progressive disease. And so it's always getting worse. So is it something that you are dealing with every single day Every one of your choices related to food, exercise, sleep, stress, affect it. So there's a thousand things you're supposed to be thinking about every day, and it's always getting worse. So every time you go to the doctor, they're saying, oh, not so good. You know, we're getting worse. So we need to keep on more medicine or that fear of insulin is out there. And um, so all of that just to really bring to life what diabetes is. And um, it's also because it's, there are so many people with diabetes. It is also being in the diabetes business is you're in the consumer business as well. Um, and you're in inherently trying to motivate people. Um, so, you know, I think our role is, it's such an exciting place to be because you're, we are immediately making people's life better who don't have to prick their fingers. That's painful. Um, so we feel like we're changing lives every day and we get the testimonials and that's just incredibly rewarding. Um, and then we think about all the work that there is to do. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's a lot because you see these, there's incredibly expensive drugs. There's incredibly expensive medical devices, not just CGM, but also pumps. There's all this promise of um, artificial pancreas in terms of what's coming. Um, and yet, if you see what's happening with people saying, um, you know, its outcomes is people with diabetes aren't getting healthier, mm -hmm. right? They're, 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 we're not seeing big changes. So there's so much work to be done and it's hard, hard, hard work. And that's what, you know, one of the things that's been really exciting and also deeply fulfilling about being in healthcare. Yeah. Obviously, your work is really impactful for, for folks with type 1 diabetes, with continuous glucose monitoring. How do you see your work moving upstream towards folks with type 2 and, and earlier, or earlier and earlier in their process of care? Certainly what we're aspiring to do. Um, so we, you know, we started out with kind of a core, as I'm sure everyone does. You say, who is your, your, your core users? And for us, core users are those who are insulin-using patients because those are people who actually are testing their glucose today. They are testing their glucose before they eat, so they know how much insulin to take. 
So there's a real need. It's everybody is aware of the need. Payers are aware of the need. And so you've got reimbursement was straightforward. And we went after our most proactive people in that group who are really trying to take, um, you know, to do to manage their health in the right way. We believe that there's so much more that continuous glucose monitoring can do in terms of giving people the feedback, the motivation to help keep their be an accountability partner, to help tie them through interoperability to food data, exercise data. So there is a tremendous amount that can be done. Um, and again, if you think about the 465 million patients, uh, people with diabetes, most of them are not using insulin. Most of them are in these other categories and they're on potentially just on metformin or on a whole variety of um, different drugs that go between the moment you're diagnosed and maybe the doctor says, you know, try to eat fewer carbs and take metformin all the way up to being using insulin every time you eat. Um, so it's something that we're really needing to do. For us, it's a pivot. So I was talking earlier about pivoting. We are a medical, we have been historically a medical device company. Abbott, across all those divisions, is not a digital health company. And all of a sudden, we need to be a digital health company. And so that means both competing to buy, uh, to hire software engineers, um, but also thinking about how do you create, how do you drive motivation? Because if you're somebody who is an insulin-taking person with diabetes, you've got a really strong tool. It might be awful and you might hate it and it's painful, insulin is injected. It's painful, it's expensive. Um, there's so many terrible things about it, but it's very effective. If you are somebody who is type two and your glucose is running high and we say, guess what, go out for a run. Well, guess what, if you're 68 year old in Oklahoma and you are severely obese, you're probably not gonna go out for a run. So how do you actually motivate people when people are motivated so differently? Um, and those are some of the things that we are thinking about. How do we make a transition capability-wise? How do we make a transition to being a great digital health company to wrap that around our med device that tells you it has the glucose data? Um, and then how do we meet these needs that are really, really tricky? These are not straightforward needs. Otherwise, they would have been addressed already. I want to get more into that conversation around behavior change. But first, we've got a question from the chat from uh, Shireen from Yumlish. Uh, Shireen, why don't you come off mute and go ahead and ask your question? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, uh, thanks, Logan. And, and thank you so much for your time, Julia. Um, I wanted to know, you were talking about this intersection of devices and digital health. Um, can, you, can you tell me how you see that evolving, especially over the next five years as we're coming out of COVID and things are going back to some sense of normalcy? Um, what does that intersection then look like as Abbott is looking even five years down the road? Sure. So digital health means so many things, right? I mean, there's a telehealth component, and I think you just touched upon that during COVID. All of a sudden, everybody became aware, uh, you know, became, had to become comfortable by necessity with telehealth. My personal take on telehealth is that that is here to stay, and that's actually going to be not good for the telehealth companies, because I think it'll get brought into the EMR and just part of regular, all physicians have a possibility and, um, you know, of, of or all the physicians could do uh, certain appointments um, via telehealth. That's just my point of view. It's certainly not proven out. Um, and therefore, I think then the capabilities that anybody who plays in healthcare needs to be able to have is interoperability. And how does the physician get the data that's needed to have a successful, um, to have a successful appointment? So that's something that we do today. We happen to already be positioned because we already are able to share data with physicians. Um, so some of this kind of telehealth on the digital health, 
if you were to look at where digital health dollars are going and who's targeting people with diabetes and type two in particular to your question, there is billions and billions and billions of dollars being poured into managing diabetes with digital health. Um, I mean, the, you know, the Avongo, which is a digital health company focused on chronic conditions such as diabetes was bought for $18 billion by Teladoc um, this past year. And part of that, I think, was COVID inflation. Part of that was what's happening with telehealth and some of um, Teladoc's vulnerabilities as a result. Um, but it goes to show the amount of that investors believe the impact that digital health can have on type two. Because um, those, you know, as I was, I was splitting up between insulin using patients and type two, but you can think about it just broadly, those non-insulin patients as type two, they're the ones who need motivation and motivation changes day to day, changes how you're feeling, changes based on who you are um, and just constant support, motivation. Um, I think that ultimately some of these companies that are out there are gonna crack the code on to be able to motivate on an ongoing basis, what they can do to combine data now that we can combine and create a really personalized experience for someone based on his or her own data, whether it's um, you know, from, from devices and whatnot combined with exercise, sleep, um, food nutrition, um, you know, potentially even blood pressure, other things. That's gonna start to create a really cohesive story that'll be ultimately be able, ultimately be able to be personalized to motivate people. Easy to say, extraordinarily hard to do, which is why nobody's done it yet. Although there's lots of players out there who are getting really good, um, really good um, user adoption. And it's not all just in the diabetes space. You look at like a Noom, and you know Noom just uh, filed something. So they, I forget what it was, they're raising money, but they just raised, I think, another half a billion dollars, um, to, and they're going to go into diabetes. But they have hundreds of millions of re in revenue, and they have um, incredible growth. And it's because they have a great user experience that's focused on helping people lose weight. And people with diabetes need help losing weight. And so I think you're going to start to really see some of these companies crack some of that secret sauce on how to, how to tap into motivation and really help people that will ultimately get even stronger as you combine it with device data like, like ours. Thanks for the question, Shireen. Uh, we, it looks like we've also got a question from Beth Sanders from LifeBile. So... Beth, come on, uh, come on and uh, go ahead and ask it. Hi, Julia. Um, I'm Beth from Life Bio. Um, you know, we work with Alzheimer's patients and we are doing life stories for better health. So we're helping capture their story before they can't share it anymore and then using it in their healthcare. Anyway, I'm hearing it being referred to as type three diabetes. And I just wondered how you see yourselves moving toward addressing Alzheimer's, you know, going forward. Interesting. So I have the first time that I have heard that. Um, so I hasn't been on our radar um, around Alzheimer's. So very interesting. One thing about diabetes, because it affects so many people because of the, um, because of what are the risk factors, especially obesity um, and, you know, just food and lifestyle is that the rate of comorbidities is extraordinarily high. So you're not just dealing with a patient who has diabetes, you're probably dealing with a patient who has diabetes and potentially cardiovascular and very, very high rate of overlap of kidney care. And I imagine there is with Alzheimer's as well. Um, it is not something that we've been focused on yet. And that's because we haven't even cracked type two diabetes, right? So we are, um, we have many, many, many type two patients, but 
the the addressable market is massive, and so we're really focused on even how do you how do you start there. Um, what's interesting is we spend a lot of time. We actually have an app for followers, so we have because again, if your child has uh, diabetes or your aging parent, um, we actually have our we have apps that let data be shared and engagement between the two. And so when you think about what are the functional capabilities that you might need to serve these groups, I feel that there could really be um, be overlap. Yeah, right. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Beth. Um, Julia, I have a marketing question. You know, diabetes is so personal to so many people. I mean, I personally can think of three loved ones uh, that have type one and, and it changed their life. Everyone has a story, it seems. Um, you know, how have you taken those personal experiences uh, to connect with patients and kind of move the market forward, you know, more personally? You know, I wonder what lessons you've learned in that regard that might be valuable for a startup that's really thinking about the patient experience, the patient journey, and connecting that to their product launch, their marketing efforts, et cetera. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think this is going to sound extraordinarily cliche, so I can't believe I'm even saying it, but one is patients got to be at the center of everything, right? Um, the, you know, patients got to be at the center of everything. And, and we spend so much time and money. I've never worked for an organization like this that has spent so much market research, really understanding our patient and not just understanding our patient, understanding, watching patient, you know, patient interactions with doctors, watching patients throughout the journey because a patient who is type one, as you said, who is, you know, a jock who has been managing this since, you know, she was 12 is completely different than somebody who is struggling with type two and the, and the worsening of type two and all that goes with it from the judgment and the depression. Um, so really knowing your patients, segmenting your patients, um, because again, one size does not fit all. And I think that's especially hard for us as we think about not only does one size not fit all, for different types of patients at different point in their patient journey, you then have to layer on what all consumer companies have to layer on as well, which is one size doesn't fit all, even for patients within, even for humans within a certain category, right? We all have different personalities. We all are motivated by different things. Um, and so how do you design in that way is something that's a big, big question for us that we're really focused on, which is why we're actually interested in partners who are focused on really focused on one part of that chain um, who can do something really well and appeal to one one segment um, but patients first and absolutely everything you do um, and can you ever think uh, of a time can you think of a time when you really changed your perspective or the team changed its perspective on the product or the approach based off of seeing something really in real life watching a patient use the device uh, etc uh, we do so much research. We are watching patients all the time. So, and I show, I show videos to my team, right? Because a lot of our hypotheses are just flipped on their head all the time. Like we came in, especially as we're trying to tackle type two non, non-insulin using patients. And we thought, oh, it's only gonna be those who are affluent who are willing to pay our, it's, there's no coverage. So it's expensive, it's an expensive medical device. That's not at all what we found. We actually found people are just so yearning for a solution. They may not stick with it because it's expensive. We gotta get reimbursement over time. But you don't know it until you hear people talk about things and you hear what works and what doesn't and you're watching them talk and interact. And this insight, which is what all people want is to know that maybe they can sneak in a banana in the afternoon and it's not gonna affect their blood glucose, but they know that in the morning it's gonna really hurt them. 
And I never thought about that. All we want is just something that's positive in the day. So like you just, we, we are constantly watching. We're bringing in patients. And then it's of course knowing very, very different types of patients. And this is a little bit about, um, um, a little bit about making that, you gotta figure out what lane you're in as well, right? So I don't know if anybody saw and um, watched the Super Bowl and our competitor Dexcom did a commercial with Nick Jonas. Well, Nick Jonas, he's a pop star. He's married to Priyanka Chopra. Um, he is young and good looking and athletic and their commercial was all that space in the future. And, and that is definitely one lane. I don't know if you guys have seen our commercials on the TV constantly right now. It's like somebody who's at a restaurant being yelled at for because they're not supposed to eat something. Like you can't be everything to everybody. So who are you gonna be, right? As you think about your patient and it's hard because it's easy to start very focused and, and then it's harder as you go broader and say, okay, great. Now we wanna start adding patients. So how do we, how do we authentic, but also know that we have totally different types of customers. Um, and then the other thing I would just keep in mind is what does customer even mean in healthcare? Like if you are focused on the patient and you're not remembering who's paying, um, you're gonna be in serious trouble because um, it's not the patient, it's the, it's the payer in the US, it's employers and employers are a terrible model, I think. Um, and so, you know, it's what is your, who actually is our customer? It's HCPs, our healthcare providers. Mm. Um, the other ones are making the decision, they're writing a prescription. We yeah. are a prescription product in the US. Um, it's over the counter in much of the world. But in the, in the US, it's prescription, which means it's actually the doctor who is making the decision. And that's who people trust by and large. So don't forget who your customers are and how complex customers are as well. Do you partner with smaller startups? And if so, you know, what do you look for in a partner, a partner, what marks a successful partnership, et cetera? Okay. Great question. And I think when, you know, my first answer is not typically, but we do have examples. We do have examples. Um, you know, the really early stage are going to be pretty tough for a big, big company. Um, and it doesn't mean impossible, it just means tough. We actually have a partnership with a little company called Super Sapiens. Um, you can look them up. It means we're going to actually have, they actually are not focused on diabetes. They have taken our sensor and rebranded them and putting them for performance athletes. And there'll be runners in the Olympics wearing our sensor. Um, they were like five guys, I think, when we started partnering with them. So they are an example of a um, of guys and gals. I'm not sure if there are gals in there. Um, and, uh, and, that's an example. And I think what made us do that is they're totally new market and um, gives us the new capabilities. They have really slick app. I was telling you guys earlier, we, our app is regulated, which means our app hasn't changed in the U S since 2017. Cause to do that, you'd have to go through the FDA. It obviously needs to being having a regulated app looks very, very different than having a super slick made for performance athletes app. That is really cool for us. And it lets us check out new markets and learn um, and then also, of course, high, high potential that wasn't there. Like, you know, good, good potential for ROI. So that's one example. Um, we have a partnership with Omada, which is not a new company. They've been around since 2011. And, um, and the reason that we have, um, they have a lot of established, I mean, they started with evidence. They started really with evidence about how to improve diabetes and being very um, outcomes focused. And that's something that matters tremendously for us. Um, so when I sort of jotted down in my head, or I jotted down sort of what would we look for in a small stage partner, because it's a high bar. It's not something you do often. Um, yeah. And so what would we look for? And that's something that is achievable from the perspective of a small company. Um, 
the, the first are sort of your um, bread and butter, and this is hard because it takes time, but we want outcomes, right? Even if you're small, but you've got outcomes of, and I mean, when I say outcomes, I mean clinical outcomes of improvement in diabetes, and in particular, health economic outcomes. At the end of the day, that's what doctors care, that's what, excuse me, payers care about. Um, when you say small, then, when you say small, how small? You mean small companies or small? You said uh, outcomes can be small oh. Uh, sets. Oh, um, I mean, you want good outcomes that are proven. It can uh, the size of the RCT. I don't know. I mean, you've got to actually have to, you actually have to go do RCTs with yeah. the, your you know clinical trials um, in our space. There's real world. There's some cool stuff with real world evidence, but a small company wouldn't have that in large scale. And um, so evidence matters. I think if you're not going to write, you're not going to go out and have scale. We'd be bringing customer base to you. It's just brought, in most cases, but do you have innovative payer partners? Are you out there? UHC is an example of a big pair in the U.S. that is willing to try things, willing to take bets on small companies. And um, once you've got an interesting payer partner, you could combine with us and get a big lot of users and actually really get to drive evidence and say, are we doing something that's different and differentiated and leading to those outcomes? Because you can't add anything to the, the system, the cost system, without showing that there's value. Hmm. Right? So especially if you're just an add-on. If it's a, then how is it actually creating the value and the return? Because again, who's going to pay for this at the end of the day? Payers. And they are not, you know, they're, they're not sentimental. So it comes down to is their value proposition for them. It's not, a, it's not a, you're not winning consumers by and large um, who are willing to pay more for a cool product. That's just not the way it works in healthcare. And um, then the lot, some other things that kind of come to mind are like one thing that we don't have is like a really great user experience. Let me rephrase that. We have a great user experience on our, we have, this, we have the best in my opinion, CGM out there, user experience, simple, easy to use, one piece, like beautiful product with a great user experience. But as we think about the digital health, you have a great user experience because that's something that bigger, older school companies could learn from some of these smaller companies, right? As you're thinking about, I've been very focused on the customer. It's when I say great user experience, um, I mean, great content, I mean, great workflow. Um, you know, patients love it, right? That's gonna be something that's gonna be really attractive. Because um, even if you don't have the patients today, if you can say we've got something that will, we believe, with the right, um, you know, investments and in, in, in complementary skills, so we could we could bring to life in a really big way. Um, FDA approval. If you have a great relationship with the FDA, or you have a product that's already FDA approved, that's way more interesting than something that's early stage, and you think that's just going to fall into place later because that's that's hard and something that takes a lot of time. So the regulatory piece is not one to undersell if you're in a regulated space. Um, and then, you know, I think also just that vision on what problem are you solving? Really clear on what problem are you solving? So the last I... thing that I would say, let me just say oh, one sorry. more thing. The go, last go thing ahead. I would say that we'd definitely be interested in is if you're a truly disruptive technology. If you are, if you have figured out the secret sauce on a non-invasive, in our case, you know, everyone, I'm sure you, you may have read in our space, you definitely read a lot about um, how Apple Watch will have glucose monitors on in the future. They probably won't be that accurate. They're probably not going to be medical. They'll probably be just, you know, for kind of fun, at least in the, in the near term. We, of course, were interested in companies that could be disruptive to us that then we say, there's, could we work together in a way that we can put our commercialization strength, our, our manufacturing muscle, all that together to do something really incredible. The, but that's well, a high bar, high bar that, to be very yeah. disruptive. No, those are super helpful. Um, as Sarah mentioned in the chat, now is the time if you'd like to uh, give your biggest insight in the chat, I'll be happy to call on you and you can reflect it back to our guest uh, and to the group. 
Um, so let's say that a startup sort of checks a bunch of these boxes. Someone's listening even now and thinks, you know, I've got a disruptive technology. I'm kind of able to um, rethink some of the things that Abbott's doing in a, in a fresh way and um, address some things in a way that maybe they're not able to great user experience. Uh, how does one go about partnering with a company like Abbott? Are there ever pitch competitions, et cetera? Um, so we don't do pitch competitions. We do. Um... We have a BD group who's really working constantly on partnerships and I work very, very closely with them. Um, we have ventures, corporate ventures, who are looking to invest, right? And typically in adjacencies to where we are or new businesses, not in our core, um, but they're looking to invest and often be strategic investors. And so that's, you know, for companies who are looking for in their next round, strategic investors is one way to get involved. Um, and then, you know, I think the the... The, what you don't want to do and what happens is all the time is you get these small companies that say, we want to work with you and here's what's in it for us. And it's very clear, right? You got to have a very clear what's in it for Abbott. If you come to Abbott and say, here's, yeah. here's what we can do together, as opposed to, as opposed to just saying, it would be so great. Cause then, you know, we could, we have this one little capability. It's gotta be really brought into this picture. Um, but if anyone has ideas, I lead our strategy, send them to me and I'll get you connected, whether it's, and ventures, whether it's our own, and I'm very connected into what are we, what are we trying to build as we go beyond medical device to really think about how are we going to ultimately um, motivate, change behavior, drive that deep loyalty. Um, and so I've got the you know great perspective in, in terms of what would be types of companies we'd be looking for um, to partner with, who could be interesting for us, and I can at the very least get you connected to the right people if it's not me. That's awesome. I appreciate it very much. Um, you being willing to do that. I mean, any any strategies off the bat, I mean, besides really knowing how to address a problem that you've got uh, about reaching out to the BD group versus the ventures group, um, uh, you know, with, with, you know, sort of a unique strategy. Sorry, ask the question again, Logan. Uh, would you say any any wisdom on sort of a unique strategy for reaching out to the to the business development group versus uh, versus ventures? Kind of like I don't know different priorities uh, and yeah, fo focuses. Sure. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, the so ventures is Abbott Abbott Ventures, so it's not just diabetes level. Like our team, our BD team here and within diabetes is focused entirely on our diabetes business, and so it's typically partners like some of the ones that I mentioned. Um, we're doing tons of EHR integration, you know, things like that, but we're doing, um, we've got partnerships with pump companies, Tandem and Insulet. And so that's what they're working on in our space, partnerships for our company. Um, as we look to offer more beyond what we can offer with our um, device and also just extend the value that we drive, deliver to our customers. Abbott Ventures is a traditional corporate ventures. So they're looking across adjacencies of every single one of our companies. So adjacent, one of our businesses today um, and so that's, um, you know, that's across if you're doing anything outside of the diabetes space and you know, either some of the areas that we're big, like neuromod or cardio um, or testing or even not, but just things that are interesting. They've got, to, you know, lots of targets. Um, and then we also have a corporate LNA group, which um, is thinking about our new businesses. And so it sort of depends on what you'd be looking for. If you guys are looking for an investment round, then it's definitely, I would connect you to ventures. If you are interested in getting connected to somebody in a different part of Abbott, I can do my best to sort of get you in that direction. 
Um, and then our group is, of course, diabetes care. So Julia, that takes us to the top of the hour. Thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, not only your own you know, personal passion, but the vision for Abbott and for the diabetes care unit. Uh, it's awesome to see what you're doing with the, um, the Freestyle uh, Libre product and how it's impacting so many lives. So thanks so much for spending this hour with us. My pleasure. It was fun to be here. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 350 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Rolling Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.